the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. It's Thursday, January 12th, and this show is dedicated to TK Whitaker, who died on Monday at the age of 100. During a long and distinguished career as a public servant, TK Whitaker served as Secretary General of the Department of Finance, as Governor of the Central Bank, as a member of Shannon Aaron, Chancellor of the National University of Ireland, and a founding father of the ESRI. Joining me in the studio to discuss his influence on Irish economic policy over many decades and his wider contribution to our society, including the Northern Ireland Peace Process, and Irish Times columnist John Fitzgerald, himself formerly of the Department of Finance and the ESRI, and Chambers, who worked with uh, TK Whitaker at the Central Bank and was his biographer and by Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole. Before we begin, let me remind you that you can uh, download Inside Business for free on iTunes. It's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And if you'd like to have your say about anything on Inside Business, you can contact us by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. We're going to begin with a clip from the RT archives from 1969 in which TK Whitaker explains the thinking behind his first programme for economic expansion. The uh, object in the very beginning was to dispel despondency, get us to realise here that there were certain things we could do if we set our minds to it. And um, I do believe that in that early period, say 1958 to 1963, the biggest factor of production working for us was the psychological factor. John Fitzgerald, an interesting uh, clip there from 1969 from T.K. Whitaker. Um, do you think he achieved his goals? Um, oh, I certainly do. Um, and I think that what he did in the 50s was, as a civil servant, pretty courageous. Like, as Secretary of the Department of Finance, to mm. publish something under, uh, sort of, which is not government policy, which clearly... And re- uh, yeah, and remember, De Valera was Taoiseach at the time, and it, it, what he was talking about was opening up Ireland, which was totally against the philosophy of the Taoiseach. Yeah. Um, Maybe we can just contextualise it, just remind people how things how bad things were for the Irish economy in the early 50s? Well, in the 1950s, you had massive emigration, the highest rate of emigration since the, basically the 19th century. Um, um, And the economy had done miserably. And the economy was totally inward looking. You produced everything from shoelaces to cars had to be made in Ireland. And um, you'd, the outside world wasn't heard of. Like you had censorship, you, like the, any relationship to the outside world. So De Valera was very much the Sinn Féin philosophy, ourselves alone, we produce for ourselves. So Self-contained. Wh- yeah, and wh- Ken Whitaker had been to the IMF, World Bank. He actually was in touch with thinking outside, the developments outside of Ireland and the opening up that the, after the Second World War, your turns to free trade. He saw this happening. He saw Ireland in the doldrums and needed to, to, that it needed a fairly radical change. And I think, as he talked about in that clip, it was a psychological change, that a changing direction, looking to the outside world for our future. And, of course, he had a very good ally in Sean Lamas, didn't he, as Taoiseach? He did, yes. And then uh, Lamas became Taoiseach in 59 and implemented... Um, uh, 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 this opening up that uh, protection was dismantled progressively from 1960 onwards, Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement 66 and then EU entry in uh, 73 and Ken Whitaker, I remember hearing him talking about uh, meeting de Gaulle when they went to 
talk to the French about Ireland entering the EU and um, maybe Anne can t- tell the anecdote but he actually talks to De Gaulle in French um, but uh, I remember him talking about that he used a word he wanted that the EU would uh, give Ireland its economic independence and he word, used a word for breaking away from Britain which was a rash uh, yeah, uh, and De Gaulle laughed because it was a much too strong a word um, and uh, 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 Ken immediately realised that he'd been a bit too hard on Britain in the word he'd used but so that was about the, the, the 60s changing focus looking to the outside world he started the ball rolling and Le Mans and the, his governments implemented it yeah, and Chambers, you worked uh, with him at the Central Bank and you became friends with him subsequently and became his biographer. Uh, what do you think his greatest achievement was in the Department of Finance? Well, in the, well certainly economic development, you know, which, which, from which um, the first programme uh, for economic expansion was derived from that. But economic development itself is a very, very interesting document. Firstly, it's written in such a simplistic and simple style. And he told me that it was really aimed at the ordinary citizen as much as was at economists or at politicians. And he told me as well that the planning, to make a plan, you had to have three things. Firstly, it had to be the right time. And that certainly was the right time because even the father of protectionism himself, Lamas, was beginning to turn the corner and see that really protectionism was leading Ireland and nowhere. Secondly, Ken said that you had to make sure that your targets for your plan were not overly ambitious because mm-hmm. otherwise the despondency that was there would be twice as bad if, that, if these targets weren't met. And thirdly, you had to give the time to the plan to come to fruition. And the targets met in terms of development, he only put at 1.5%, when in effect the plan, the economic development itself, achieved a 3.5% growth. So that gave a great boost to confidence here in Ireland, and that's really what it was all about. And when I was doing research for that in the Department of Finance, I came upon files that had messages from housewives, farmers, shopkeepers writing to Ken Whittaker, Secretary of the Party, to say they had read economic development mm. because it was published and they read it and they said, you know, this is going to save the country. It's the first sensible plan we've heard since the foundation of the state. It was quite amazing, really. Yeah, Fintan, in a piece that you wrote for the Irish Times uh, earlier this week, you described him as a conservative revolutionary who was neither a, a political nor a cultural radical. Uh, what did you mean by that? So... I think it's important to to understand that you you know he he was trying to save something he wasn't trying to transform it he he was he was essentially trying to save Irish independence uh, you know he he was in many ways a kind of classic Irish nationalist you know he he believed strongly in Irish independence he was a believing Catholic uh, a liberal Catholic but I mean a very very devout Catholic. He was a huge supporter of the Irish language, you know, and, and user of the Irish language, I mean, not just a kind of theoretical supporter of it. Um, so he, he cared deeply about the sort of the basic architecture of Irish independence, you know, political independence, the idea of, of a separate Irish culture um, and a kind of Catholic identity. You know, his one was a very open, global one, but it was, it was nevertheless very, very strongly so. So he wasn't someone who was trying to set out to create the Ireland we live in now, in which we're, you know, so extraordinarily globalised, in which our, you know, ideas of a Gaelic culture are, are quite marginalised, uh, and in which Catholicism, uh, you know, as a central part of, of Irish identity uh, has been eroded. Um, he, he set out to try to save a, a, a version of that kind of Ireland that he loved very, very deeply. 
Um, and of course, what he realised was that you know, in order for things to change, uh, in order for things to say the same things would have well. to change. Yeah, yeah. that, that they, you know, that you could not preserve these things by simply adopting some kind of static idea of mm. what they were, which is, 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 I suppose, what De Valera was trying to do. You know, it was a backward-looking notion of this Irish identity. I think the key thing about Whitaker was, you know, if you take the word civil servant, I mean, he was a civil servant, and the civil was as important as the servant, you know. He, he was an extraordinarily civil person. You know, he, he, mm. he had a kind of um, graciousness to him, a kind of courtesy to him, a kind of good manners to him. And it's really fascinating what Anne was saying about even the writing of, of, mm. of um, economic development. You know, it's, it's a civil act. You know, it's, it's, it's meant to address ordinary people. Yeah. It has a respect for citizenship. It has a respect for the idea that everybody has a right to know what's going on and, and to be part of something. Whether it's right or wrong, you know, th- that very act of saying, you know, this is your country, this is your future, you have a right to be engaged with it and to be involved with it and to know what I'm doing. That itself was an extraordinarily important thing to do in a society which was very, very top down. I mean, John was talking about, you know, the censorship, for example, the, the whole idea that, you know, the church and state knew what was good for you and, and they were going to take their decisions regardless. So, I mean, Whitaker mm-hmm. was, a, it was a great Democrat. You know, he, he, he was an extraordinary figure in terms of saying... Uh, that first of all, taking responsibility. I mean, John talked about this. But well, that, you that mentioned in your piece, didn't you, that but, there was no ass covering uh, yeah. in this paper. I mean, he put his name front and centre, whereas yeah. a lot of civil servants over the decades uh, well, have tended to. Uh, insisted that he put his name. Yeah. Now it wasn't Ken Whitaker who put his name to it. It wasn't the like egotistical to, uh, thing. Uh, it was the no, yeah. uh, Lamas and Ken told me with a twinkle in his eye. He said, "You know." They, they, it was suggested and it broke all conventions at, at the time that a civil servant would be, would be actually addressed as the author of anything. Uh, and he insisted firstly that not only his name would go down but all the people with whom he worked on it and there's about eight of them listed on it. And he told me with a twinkle in his eye, he said, you know, he said, if it hadn't worked out, then Lamas could say, well, it was done by a crowd in, yeah. the, in the Department of Finance who were never asked to do it in the first place. And the second point I'd like to make, and it's very relevant to today's mm. ethos, which mm. has changed so drastically from his. He and his team worked outside office hours on their own time without any hope or expectation of any recompense uh, it's such a contrast today in our, our in our system of top ups and bonuses and you know uh, a narcissist uh, an individual. It was so different to that, and every one of these people who worked on that program did it for the common good. Yeah, John, I think you came after his time uh, in the Department of Finance, but you were making a point to us earlier before we came on air that uh, he was held in very high regard. Yeah, it, without ge- question. Generally, the Department of Finance, when I joined it in 1972, it was a very questioning and quite exciting environment. You question everybody, you question your bosses, you criticise and whatever. But Whitaker was held in exceptionally high regard by everybody, which would be very unusual. Normally, you'd have somebody who'd say have bad words to say about them or whatever. But no, he was respected. And one of the things which I think was interesting, going back to what you were saying, Finton, in the 1950s, fin- there was no Finton O'Toole. There was nobody holding the government to account. There was no media discussion. And this was something Whitaker was very conscious of. And the reason the ESRI, he had the ESRI set up, he wanted to set it up so that it could criticise the Department of Finance. Here's the Secretary of Department of Finance. So he wanted to get Ford Foundation funding. And he heard the guy with the control of the funds serve Mass in St. Patrick's in New York every morning at 10. So he told me that he went to Mass at 10 o'clock in St. Patrick's and managed to nobble the guy afterwards and got the money to set up an independent ESRI in 1960. 
Yeah, great story. Uh, just sort of encapsulate for us, John, if you can, the changes in the Irish economy, let's say in the 10 years up to uh, when he left in 1969. And we'll come on to the reasons for him leaving the department then. Well, the, the changes were limited in that period. I think that the, 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 Ireland made huge mistakes in the immediate post-war years. The failure when the rest of Europe woke up from the nightmare and said free trade is where it's at. And the other thing, we failed to invest in education. Now, it's the first of those he addressed, but the benefits of that took decades to play out. And it is interesting in the context of Brexit that changing your uh, your trade arrangements can take decades to play out. So, yes, you saw definite benefits. The economy was growing. Emigration stopped and it was reversed um, in, in, in the 70s. Um, big changes. But really, the full benefits took decades to come. And that's why making this change was so important. Um, that if he'd if if he hadn't managed to with Lamas and the government to change things in the 60s, I don't know where we'd be today. Yeah, we wouldn't and be living here. We'd be, we'd all have emigrated. <laughs> and he left the Department of Finance in 1969 at a relatively uh, young age. And mm. some suggestions that perhaps he didn't uh, he didn't like or get on with uh, Charlie Howe. Maybe you can fill us in on that. Well, he was rather reluctant to talk about his reasons for leaving. Firstly, the, the Department of Finance was central to his life. The central bank governorship really was problematic. Isol he felt isolated. Uh, and because fiscal and monetary policy parted ways during the 1970s with Ken Whittaker trying to hold desperately onto uh, credit control in the central bank mm. and the Department of Finance during the uh, Hahi and indeed the Kali era, uh, letting go of the purse strings. So there was a terrible tug going on there, which I remember very, very well myself. It was really, you know, uh, journalists uh, would come to the central bank when he gave um, a press conference in their droves because it was from Whitaker they were hearing the real situation in the economy. Yeah. Uh, it was a very, very difficult time. The reason he left perhaps was Northern Ireland as well. We haven't covered that. Northern Ireland was beginning to blow up at that stage. And while Ken Whitaker admired Charlie Hawhey, uh, found him a very hardworking and, of course, a very intelligent minister, there were two things that really uh, set uh, them apart. One was Northern Ireland and the second was when when the 1971 Central Bank Act came into being, bef as it was being implemented, the Minister for Finance at the time attempted to take control of credit policy for the economy to remove it from the Central Bank. And Ken Wetterger made his statement to Charlie Hawhey. Firstly, he said to him, as a good Catholic, I recognise the supreme authority of the Pope but like a good bishop, I claim jurisdiction within my own diocese. And when Charlie Hawhey persisted, and this is a very interesting thing in terms of what wasn't done during the Celtic Tiger era, Ken Whitaker said he would resign. Now, if Ken Whitaker resigned, such was, was his record, such was his standing among the people and among the politicians of the time, if he decided to resign from the central bank, well, that wouldn't look good for the Department of Finance. So... I can tell you credit policy remained under central bank control. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's also interesting that he imposed penalties on excessive lending mm. by the banks um, because the, he felt the building sector was overheating. Uh, and how we could have done with that kind of uh, policy making perhaps 30 well, years later? Well, I suppose in a way, you know, a lot of the uh, central bank authority in that regard had moved to the ECB during the mm. time of the credit policy. But I will say this, that Monsieur Jean-Claude Trichet would have a much more 
a much stronger and more determined opponent to his policy of light touch regulation if he had Ken Whitaker sitting on the board of the ECB as governor of the Bank of, of the Central Bank of Ireland. He and indeed, may I add, he was absolutely appalled and perplexed. He refused to comment, and the uh, journalists had a mm. path beaten to his drawer because they really wanted to know what he thought of what was happening Post-O-S. down in Dame Street, basically. And he did say to me he was appalled and perplexed. And when the new governor, Patrick Honan, took over, he did go in to see him. And Patrick told me himself, he said to him, what are you going to do to save Ireland from national humiliation? He didn't say bankruptcy. He didn't say mess, economic mess. He didn't say a financial disaster. He used the word humiliation. And that's how deeply he felt about what had happened. Yeah. I think you also feel that he promoted gender equality as well during your time in the Well, Central I remember Bank. that myself and I have him to thank for that. When I and entered the, the Central, that was in the 1970s. There was no equality pay, no equality uh, promotional. The ladies in the central bank as they were referred to then euphemistically went this way uh, in with the same um, uh, qualifications as our male colleagues who went this way so when ken came into the uh, central bank he saw that and he saw that the women were as well qualified as the men so all the grades were opened up to the men before equality became a a legal uh, right Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Uh, Fintan, let's talk about Northern Ireland uh, a little bit. I'm used from County Down himself. Um... And he's somebody who is credited with having uh, played a role behind the scenes uh, in the Northern Ireland uh, peace process. And I I think he helped to facilitate that meeting uh, between Jack Lynch and Terence O'Neill all those years ago. Yeah, you know, he 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 conceives, I think, from the very early 60s onwards that that the future of Ireland, as far as he could see it, was within a triangle. You know, and the triangle was defined by uh, economic openness, by membership of the European Union and by rapprochement on the island, mm. you know. And he understood very, very early, you know, really when, when you when you think about all the subsequent developments, he was one of the people very, very, very early on who focused on the principle of consent. You know, why? Because he actually cared about the United Ireland. You know, the United Ireland had become entirely rhetorical. It was something that was trotted out at our dishes uh, and a kind of claptrap. Uh, but nobody actually, or well, to say nobody is an exaggeration, but there were very few politicians who really took it seriously in terms of thinking about, okay, what would you have to do in order to get in Ireland? Do you really want it? And I think because of his own northern background, but also because of his intellectual honesty, you know, he didn't have any time for that kind of empty rhetoric. He said, well, if this is state policy, if this is in our constitution, what do you have to do to get there? And of course, he realised what, what, you know, tragically, it took so long uh, for, for, for Irish nationalism in general to realise that the only way to unite Ireland was, was through the hearts and minds of Ulster Unionists. You know, there was no other way in which you could do this. It, 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 you were either going to achieve it by consent or you were probably not going to achieve it at all. And so he, he was a really critical architect uh, of that policy. You know, of, of, and of course... It's maybe the most tragic aspect of his life, in a sense, that if you if you think about the other two parts of the triangle, you know, the economic openness, he, he certainly achieved. The membership of the European Union, which he saw as critical, he obviously achieved. Uh, and 
I suppose the tragic aspect of his life was that that, that other key part of his uh, intellectual force... Uh, well, Seamus Mallon famously said, talked about Sunningdale for slow learners, you know, and, and in a sense, the Irish nationalism in general was was far too slow a learner in terms of the the, the, the critical uh, insight that 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 Whitaker had alongside Lamas. You know, it, 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 I think Whitaker, if he was here, would have been the first person to say, "Would you stop talking about me and talk about Lamas?" You know, he he had enormous respect for the political process. He had enormous respect for politicians. Um, he he always gave huge credit to to, to Lamas and, and to Lynch and even to Holly. You know, the people who worked with. But but it, it was Whitaker and Lamas who who tried to make that break. Through mm. the tragedy is it was perhaps at a time when it seemed to be everything going in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, that possibility seemed to be very very real, and then we know it was overtaken by events, her- yeah. horrific events, and and there was no way out of it during his active political career. But if you look at him in the Senate, for example, throughout all of that period, you know he he was consistently saying with absolute calm and reasonableness and that kind of civic conscience. Talking about consent, talking about the need to rethink Irish nationalism in a way that took it seriously. Well, um, among his, his archive now, and much of it hasn't been released into public domain yet, in which I was had, I was given access to for the book. The the he was running really in tandem with government efforts to bring uh, peace to Northern Ireland over a thirty-year period. He did write Jack Lynch's famous Tralee speech, which committed the Irish government to the policy of reunification by consent. Before that, it was force, and indeed, he'd already had a contretemps with Charlie Hawhey over a memo that came down. Uh, uh, he suggested that Article uh, is it one of the Constitution or two? Maybe it is. You might correct me there. Um, should be stopped because we hadn't the force we hadn't the money to take over the North by force and yet that was in our constitution and back came a written memo in his handwriting from Charlie I to say we will never issue uh, force as a means of uh, reunification. Now uh, you know in his papers he started off on this uh, behind the scenes but with the acknowledgement of Jack Lynch in particular to relate to his counterparts in the administration of Northern Ireland, in banking circles in the North and also in the UK. And they were working in tandem behind the scenes producing policy documents that were fed in turn to the United Kingdom government and to the Irish government. And one of these policy papers is called Northern Ireland a possible solution, written in 1971 by Ken Whittaker. And it really is the Good Friday Agreement for Slow Learners. But sadly, with 30 years of death and destruction in the meantime. John? Um, what's interesting is, today, the idea that the chief advisor of the government in Northern Ireland would be the Secretary of the Department of Finance would seem bizarre. But the point was the Department of External Affairs at the time didn't deal with Northern Ireland because we believed in Irish unity and uh, th- so there was nobody in foreign affairs who knew anything about the North or paid any- there was nobody else. So by default, Ken Whitaker and the Department of Finance and became the advisors of the government because there was nobody else. And up to, and even when he was governor of the central bank, the fact in, in 1969 that Lynch turned to him for advice because foreign affairs weren't in a position to, 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 to advise him. So I think that that was a huge administrative failure and he filled the gap um, so effectively. And also he held Lynch back, you know, uh, crossing the border and we won't stand mm. idly by. Ken Whitaker was holidaying in a little cottage down in Karna in the remote 
about uh, Connemara Gaeltacht and you told me you had to go into the local store that uh, that sold kerosene and and yeah, bales of twine and everything to make this important phone call to say, hold on, I will get you this before the post goes today. Everything by post, everything snail mail. To, to, to put this into Lynch's mind, you stop and this is what we do. So he really behind the scenes saved an awful lot in the emotion of the 1969 crisis. Yeah. John, let's fast forward to our EU membership uh, and, and subsequently we become members of the Eurozone. Um, have you any sense of how we felt about that? Um, uh, not on the Eurozone. Uh, I certainly I didn't get any impression that he felt that it had been a policy mistake. He seemed to uh, fully accept it. But I did have a series of letters and conversations with him in the early years of the last decade about his fears about government policy and the problem of competitiveness and how one could bring home to the wider public about the dangers um, that the economy was running. So uh, this, this right into his nineteen into his eighties, he was watching what was going on but as Anne said he never wanted to take the public stage he was a civil servant to the day he died yeah. um, you, you, you're you, you're the eminence grise you don't go out in public but boy was he concerned well yeah. he did go out in public on two things now and that was in the e, uh, for the EU in the 1980s he was, writ- he was writing already what we're all experiencing now and the ordinary people and he was always towards the ordinary people and what they're experiencing now this disconnect and disillusionment with the structures of the EU he was already saying that Europe had lost, and he used the words Elan Vital. You know, it had lost the spirit of the Treaty of Rome. When Ireland left the Euro, what did he say? He said, in civil service speak, he said, what a quixotic gesture. You know, so that means, you know, he he didn't really approve of that. And we may have to revisit all of that again if Europe holds together, which we all hope it will. But if from inside, it seems, you know, we might have to revisit that same question. Fintan, what do you think you would have made of Brexit and Donald Trump? Um, I think he would have been absolutely appalled. And I don't think, I mean, you know, it's, it's usually you would you would be reluctant to speak on anybody else's behalf, let, yeah. let, let alone somebody <laughs> of his intellect. But I think there's absolutely no doubt. Um, and he, he would have been as appalled by the process as by the outcomes of those things. I mean, the, the idea that you could propose something as fundamental as Brexit, for example, with not even the bloody back of an envelope, you know, without any sense of where you were going, you know, he, 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 and of course, Trump, I think the vulgarity of Trump, the, the idiocy of Trump, the, the, the lack of moral and, and personal responsibility that, that Trump has already shown um, would have deeply, deeply appalled him. Um, because he, he, he was a person who, um, just to go back to the thing about his, his personality, you know, um, I only met him a few times, you know, but you would be incredibly impressed by the man. You know, he, he, he had, um, absolute steeliness you know but but it was a steeliness that was there in order to try to do the right thing i mean he had a really profound sense of moral purpose and he i think was for all that he was you know to me too conservative uh, you know I, I i i don't think he ever if you look at economic development, for example, you know, it really doesn't have a great a, a fundamental sense of the importance of education, which turned out to be the most important thing in terms of transforming yeah. Ireland. He, he perhaps was too conservative in relation to social spending, social development. But his, his, his conservatism was moral. You know, it, it was, he was driven by a sense that actually economics is not just about markets. This whole idea that you, you let the market do whatever the market wants to do 
I think was anathema to him because he had a really fundamental sense of social responsibility and of, of moral responsibility. And I think for him, looking at Brexit, looking at Trump, looking at the the rise of, of this kind of idiocy in, in, in parts of Europe, um, would have must have been deeply, deeply depressing because he was someone who believed in the possibility of a civic, rational, democratic discourse as an enabling thing for everybody, you know, for all citizens. And it's 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 a voice and an attitude that we really do need to reconnect with. John, going back to the early 60s, I was a friend of his son, David, and spent a lot of time in the house. And I remember him bringing back some LPs from the United States, which were uh, comedies lampooning John F. Kennedy and even sort of a hero. But how amused he was at the criticism of Kennedy. I certainly think he would have been listening to CNN uh, when it came to Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, you were friends with him uh, up until obviously very recently. I I think you saw him on Monday before he passed. Mm. Um, What did he make of what happened in Ireland around the time of the crash and and, and what has followed? Well, he was very uh, very perplexed. He told me and appalled were the two words. And as I said, he he went in to the central bank and to see um, Mm. the new governor and uh, just asked him, you know, what was he going to do to save Ireland from humiliation? And as I said, the word he used, humiliation. But he didn't wish to... I I asked him that question, why he didn't comment more seriously, I suppose, and at at greater length on it. And he said he simply didn't feel equipped to deal with the way banking now particularly had moved on. The borderless world of banking had changed so much. And uh, what Fenton was saying there is so right, you know, there was nothing spontaneous about Ken Whitaker in terms of policymaking. Everything was methodical, well-researched, Depending on, you know, the databases available, you talk about economic development, there were no databases available then. The, C- the CSO had barely been established. So in a bit, it was a bit of a wing and a prayer. And you also mentioned the education. We mustn't forget that there was a commission of education established then, and that's why Ken Whitaker didn't put education in a strong way into economic development, because there was a commission established to look at the whole aspect of, and he felt he might be stepping on their, their shoes, and he wanted to concentrate more on the agricultural side of thing, the economy, that kind of thing in economic development. But uh, it's that, you know, um, attention to detail. There was nothing off the cuff about anything yeah. he did. And I think John would, would, would uh, um, know that as well. Everything was... So in this day and age of the soundbite and mm. everything, our news coming at us through tweets and Mr Trump uh, about to take over in the White House... Well, I thought I think it was it very interesting important. that in 2002 he was voted Irishman of the 20th mm. century um, by RTE uh, viewers, by which, which probably tells you something the ordinary people, as Anne says. Uh, and that was the yeah. honour. He got many honours, uh, national yeah. and international. That was the one that he really and, appreciated. You know, it was fascinating because, you know, you think, what other country in the world would people <laughs> vote a civil servant? A bureaucrat, yeah. a proud bureaucrat. I mean, you know, bureaucrats used as a term of abuse. He was very proud to be a bureaucrat. That, that's, that's what he did. And I think there's probably no other country in the world where people would, would vote a bureaucrat as their person of century. But it was because people, whether you follow the detail of what he was suggesting in policy terms or not, I think the reason that Irish people were so impressed with him was the sense of patriotism. You know, that sort of very deep sense that he, he functioned in everything he did, you know, by the best lights he had, for the common good. And, you know, he didn't make himself rich. 
he he didn't look for vast salaries. You know, in fact, he he was probably underpaid for for an awful lot of his career. He didn't feel that he was entitled to to, to lead the lifestyle of the rich and famous. He had no interest in any of that. He he was genuinely interested in uh, an, an idea of civic democracy. You know, in, in an idea that actually uh, it was the right thing to do for probably the most talented person of his generation in terms of management, uh, you know, mm. administration, all of those kind of things which could have made him fortunes anywhere. It was the right thing to do for him to try to serve the community as best he could. And I think, you know, right now, when we're, we're in a period when we have this huge challenge to those kind of democratic values, I think the question is, people keep asking, well, where, where are Whitakers now? You know, um, but... I think, and again, it's, it's, it's outrageous to speak on his behalf, but I think he would have said, well, actually, you know, it's all our responsibilities, you know, that, that he, he, he's a kind of model of a way of trying to devote yourself as best you can to the common good, to try to be serious, to try to be responsible. The amount of work he did for no money um, at all after his retirement, you know, is absolutely extraordinary. Look at his report on the prison system which is still the absolutely key report on the Irish prison system, which has still not been implemented. You could publish it tomorrow with a you know, couple of, 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 of changes, but it's rational, it's beautifully written, it's clear, it's perfectly well argued, and it's full of compassion. The Prisoners' and, you know, Rights Organisation uh, called yeah. it the most sympathetic document yeah. on prison reform. Uh, an American colleague of mine, the SRI, was on that commission, and he said that Whitaker's chairing of it was amazing, that they agreed the first meeting what the plan was and every chapter they did a chapter a meeting and Whitaker made sure the draft included everything that had been agreed at the meeting and they never had to go backwards because he he brought agreement um, and brought logic to it and just the way that this was actually delivered and um, he said Whitaker said he knew nothing about the subject but he was there to deliver and he delivered and it was those skills which go beyond sort of drafting um, of managing people to produce a, a result that those were skills which we don't tend to talk but about. But with that underlying moral purpose yes. isn't it, as well so it's the combination yeah. of that okay. incredible administrative ability and a moral purpose and that's really what makes Finally, it Finally I'm, I'm going to go around the table and ask you just to give us your thoughts on his lasting legacy uh, and Chambers. Well, his lasting legacy, you know, he has covered so many um, subjects. He's been heads of so many commissions. He's been our top uh, public servant, uh, best governor perhaps we ever had of the central bank. But I think uh, behind all of his achievements, the ethos that motivated him, I think that's his important legacy. The ethos his of... Ethics, exactly. The ethics that guided his work. And they came from his background, which was an ordinary background in Drogheda. Uh, he never went to university in the regular sense of the word. He got his three degrees while working and, as he said himself, rocking his firstborn in a cradle. And I think, you know, with all due respects to academe, I think the fact that Ken Whitaker never actually attended regular uh, in the preserved and rarefied atmosphere of universities, his economics and his various policies on the whole range of subjects, and indeed his ability to take on this huge range, constitution reform, salmon preservation, penal yeah. reform, Senate, everything, that helped him to connect with ordinary people. And that's why his policy documents today are highly readable. OK, Fenton? I think his lasting legacy is courage. 
you know, if you go back to that uh, clip that we heard at the beginning, you know, where he understood that actually the real point of policy making and, and trying to create a map isn't that this map is going to be accurate of the future because it's never going mm. to be. It's the sense that having a map gives people a collective sense of courage, a psychological belief that it's possible to, to do things better than they're being done at, at the moment. And, uh, you know, for all his conservatism, he's a very ambitious figure. He set out to say, we're going to have an open economy, we're going to be members of the European Union, and we're going to have the principle of consent. He achieved those three enormous things over the course of his lifetime. Um, and I think what, again, what he's, you know, his, his legacy says to us now is, that was the paradigm that was created uh, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. We're still working off that paradigm. Is it good enough? to be still working off, off Whitaker's paradigm. Maybe if Whitaker were here, he'd be saying, what's your paradigm? You know, where, 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 what's, what's the new way of trying to think ambitiously about how you can transform the society for the better? John Fitzgerald. Um, he joined the civil service in October 1934 in a completely different world. And the world today is a much better place than it was then. Okay. Uh, that's it for this bonus episode of Inside Business. My thanks to John Fitzgerald and Chambers and to Fintan O'Toole. Declan Collin produced the podcast with Rob O'Sullivan as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow our feed on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to have your say on any issues raised by Inside Business, you can contact us by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 